The following lecture was delivered at the 8th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Aurora Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Baruch Kaplan will now present a lecture entitled The Multidimensional Experience of the Passover Seder. The Gemara is discussing, the Mishnah before this Gemara discusses the laws of leaning and says that even the poorest man in Israel has to lean during the, the Passover Seder, during the Seder. Leaning represents what idea? Why do we recline when we eat matzah on Pesach? To symbolize freedom, exactly. So leaning is an expression of freedom. So when we're learning this Gemara, and we're discussing whether or not we lean on wine, we're going to have to understand that disagreement relative to an expression of freedom. Is that a proper expression or improper expression? How might it relate to wine, etc.? Okay? Because certainly leaning represents the notion of freedom. That's how free people eat. And when the Mishnah says even the poorest person in, in Israel, I mean, even a very, very poor person has to lean, what they mean is, of course, the Mishnah says, even that person, why might I think he doesn't? Well, he's somewhat enslaved to his poverty. But even he, who isn't exactly free to do what he wants because he's so poor, even he leans because this expression of freedom transcends his particular financial situation. Okay, so let's see what the Gemara says. Even the poorest man in Israel must not eat until he reclines. That's the Mishnah. It was stated, this is the Gemara discussing that part of the Mishnah. It was stated, for the eating of the unleavened bread, which you and I call matzah, for the eating of matzah, reclining is necessary. When we eat matzah, we must recline. It's necessary. We must recline because we have to ex express the notion of freedom. And as a matter of fact, if you eat matzah without reclining, what must you do? Eat it again. Right? Now, we eat a lot of matzah, so we don't want to eat it again because we don't have room. Although, maybe what we should do is have a JLI retreat the week before Pesach, which will get us used to eating such vast amounts of food <laughs> that by the time we get to the Seder, our stomach will have expanded to such a point that eating matzah and drinking all that wine won't be such a problem. We might be onto something here. Okay? For the bitter herbs, murrah, reclining is not necessary. Why not? Oh, beautiful. The, the eating of the Mara represents the notion of the enslavement, the bitterness of the enslavement. So certainly it's a ridiculous time to express freedom. It's a time to actually not express freedom. Okay? Now, it seems that the Gemara does not say it's forbidden to lean. It simply says it's not necessary. That's, that's the third time you eat. First you eat matzah alone, then you eat bitter herbs alone, then you eat them together. Very interesting question. What you're saying is a very good question. When we eat them together, that's not our Gemara, but when we eat them together, what do we do? We lean. Okay. As for the drinking of the wine, it was stated, now it's very important to notice who is giving us his legal halakhic opinion relative to the necessity to lean during, drink, during the drinking of the wine. Now, of course, we all know how many cups do we drink? Four. Total of four. Okay? So, 
Do we lean or do we not lean when we drink the four cups of wine? It was stated in Rav Nachman's name that reclining is necessary. Meaning, Rav Nachman, when asked about the case called wine, do we lean or do we not lean, his halacha was lean in the case of wine. And it was stated in Rav Nachman's name that reclining, leaning, is not necessary. In other words, there are two statements in the name of the same amoda, the same rabbi who speaks in the time of the Gemara. The people who speak in the Mishnah are called Tanaim, a Tana, and the people who speak in the Gemara are called Amoraim, an Amora. A Tana is much more authoritative than an Amora. Okay? Rav Nachman is an Amara. He's from the time of the Gemara, from the year approximately 200 to 500. That's the 300-year period of the Babylonian Talmud. He is quoted twice relative to the same case, the case of wine. Relative to wine, he once said, lean, and evidently at another time he said, don't lean. Now, obviously, that seems to be somewhat contradictory. The Gemara continues. Yet, they do not disagree. These two expressions of Rav Nachman don't, don't disagree in any way, shape, or form. Why? One ruling refers to the first two cups, and the other ruling refers to the last two cups. Oh, what do we know about wine? How many cups are there? Four. That means there are four opportunities to drink wine. So certainly it's possible to lean on some and not lean on the others. Evidently, Rav Nachman said, lean relative to two cups, and don't lean relative to two cups. What's our question? Okay, but before that question, which two cups? Which should I lean and which should I not lean? Then we have to ask why. I agree. But first we have to know what before we ask why. Some people are really hung up on why and they forget to do, you know, what, what is it that I'm asking about? Let's see what we're asking about. Okay. They don't agree. One ru ruling refers to the first two cups, and the other ruling refers to the last two cups. Some explain it in one direction. The word in the Gemara, interesting, is, is, is chad gisa, one side. So the, the direction is a reasonable translation. It's a hard word to translate. But meaning, it's explained one way, and another group of people explain it another way. Mm -hmm. Some explain it one direction, others explain it in the other direction. Meaning, some say that we lean on two, whichever those two are, so I guess they'll say the first two, and we don't lean on the last two, and someone else will say exactly the opposite, that we don't lean on the first two and do lean on the last two. Let's see. Thus, some explain it in one direction. What does that mean? And this is a quote from the Gemara. The Gemara repeats itself. For the first two cups, reclining is necessary. Because it is at this point that freedom commences. For the last two cups, reclining isn't... It, I'm sorry. It, it should say not necessary. Okay? It's interesting. Uh, uh, obviously, it means not necessary. I didn't spell check the English translation, but the English translation has a mistake in it, okay? And in the Gemara, I can show you, it says, loy boy it does not require, which obviously makes sense, because after all, we're talking about which two do and which two don't. So they left out a word not, and if anybody wants to get in touch with it, whoever it is that was printed here, I don't know whose Gemara we're looking at, but they should fix it, okay? Some explain that the first two cups reclining is necessary because it is at this point that freedom commences. For the last two cups, reclining is not necessary because, because what has been has been. 
Maidahave have is the Gemara's language. Mashayaya, that which was, was. Okay, let's try to understand this position a little bit, just a little bit. Why are we leaning on the first two cups, according to this position? It's the beginning of freedom, right? Because after all, what are we doing? We're sitting at a Seder, and why are we sitting at this Seder? To commemorate the freedom of the Exodus. Okay, so we're doing that. So we do that on the first two cups. What are the first two cups? What, where, how, how, we have to now know when we drink these cups. The first cup is, what do we do? Kiddush. Kiddush is made on the first cup. The second cup, after we tell the whole story of the Haggadah, we drink the second cup. Third cup, benching. We eat matzah, we eat the meal, and then we bench. We bench on the third cup, and the fourth cup is at the end. When after, after uh, the fourth cup is at the end after we've said the the prayers at the, after benching, and that's the f- one that people really struggle to find room for. Right? Okay. So those are the four cups. Kiddush, the end of the Haggadah, the end of the telling of the story, benching after the meal, and then the very very end. Okay. So. This position says, the first two cups were about to proclaim our freedom, so we lean on the first two cups, and then the last two, why don't we have to lean? What was, was, in other words? I'm sorry? That we did it. You know, we, we, we proclaimed our freedom with the first two, so we're done. No, that's the next position. Right? That's what we're going to read right now. Wait, hold on. No. No, that's where it's necessary. No, 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 no. I put the not before the last two cups reclining is not necessary. All right, okay? Saying that? And you'll see that that has to be because of what's going to happen next. I just hope there's not another typo. Okay? So. The others explain as follows. They explain it in the contrary direction. On the contrary, au contraire, the last two cups necessitate reclining because it is precisely then that there is freedom. The first two cups do not necessitate reclining because he is still reciting avadim hayinu, we were slaves. Okay. This is the other opinion that says we don't lean on the first two, we do lean on the last two. So first it explains why we lean on the last two. Why do we lean on the last two? What does it say? Because that's when there is freedom, on the last two. The first two, we don't recline. Why not? Oh, because what are we saying on on, Kiddush? We haven't said anything yet. The first, the second cup is the cup we read, we drink relative to what we were reading in the Haggadah, and what were we saying in the Haggadah? We were slaves. Oh, okay. Beautiful. Very clear. But what do we have to do now, the learner of this Gemara? To understand the conceptual difference between these two ways of looking at what it is that we're doing when we're sitting at that Seder. Fine. There's definitely an interesting conceptual difference between these two positions. 
The first position looks at us in what way when we sit down at the Seder? Who are we as we sit down at the Seder? According to the first position we saw. We're free. Beautiful. According to the second position, who are we when we sit down at the Seder? We're not free. When do we become free? After we've told the story, the last two cups. That's when we're free. Okay. That's a, so what's the conceptual difference between the way those two positions are looking at the event called the Passover Seder? According to the first position, who sits down at the Passover Seder? A free person. According to the second position, when are you free? Only after you've done what it is that you have to do, which is, interestingly enough, say the Haggadah, and you've eaten matzah, you've eaten maror, but you've also eaten matzah because you're benching. Okay, so according to that position, when you sit down at the Seder, you're actually not free. Therefore, what's happening in the course of the Seder? You are being freed. So there's a very, very interesting disagreement as to how we relate to the Seder. Is the Seder an event commemorating a, a historical event that happened this year when we sat down? It was 3,325 years since we left Egypt. Right? Next year it'll be 3,326 years, though hopefully next year the Seder will be in the times of Mashiach and we'll be eating Korban Pesach, we'll eat the sacrifice and it'll be a whole different thing because we're going to have some pretty amazing things to remember of what just happened to us when Mashiach came. But last year was the 3325th anniversary of the exodus of Egypt. We left in the year 2448 on the 15th day of Nisan. This year was 5773. You guys can do the math. 24, 57, that's 33. 48 to 73, another 25. 3,325 years ago, we got out of Egypt. When we sat down at the Seder a few months ago, we were free people as a result of that event, and we were commemorating that event as the source of our freedom. That's the first position. What does the second position say? Are we commemorating a, a historical event? We're living a historical event, exactly. According to the second position... What happened 3,325 years ago happens every single year. We are not, ex we are not commemorating a, an event. We are experiencing an event. By virtue of doing that which we have to do in the context of the Seder, we extract ourselves from Mitzrayim, which is the language of limitation. We extract ourselves from limitation and allow ourselves to be open to a transcendent godly reality. We leave behind Egypt. And the power to do that comes from the fact that it happened in history 3,325 years ago. But interestingly enough, we talked about this yesterday in terms of another, another understanding of time, but time constantly repeats upon itself. Right? It's not that time moves in a straight line. The 15th of Nisan comes around once a year. That means the energy of the 15th of Nisan reappears every year. What is the energy of the 15th of Nisan? An energy of freedom, an energy of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, an energy of Geula, redemption. And that energy exists, so the second opinion actually says, you're not telling a story, you're living the story.
And therefore, don't lean on the first two, because after all, you're not yet free. You haven't yet extracted yourself from Mitzrayim. Lean on the last two. Now, it also happens to be very interesting. The Gemara does not mention this at all, but it's very interesting just in terms of the time. When did we get out on the 15th? When did we actually leave Egypt? 3,325 years in a few months ago. The evening. Meaning midnight. We left midnight. We walked out in the day, the next day. But the basic leaving was midnight. Paro pajamas bam salayla. After after the, um, there's a song they sing in Hebrew. Paro in his pajamas in the middle of the night. Paro's in the pajamas. Because Paro came out in his pajamas as the firstborn were being killed at midnight. And said, go. And we left. Quickly. Okay. So, usually we bench after midnight. (laughs) Usually the first half of the night we're actually doing the Seder. But we haven't left yet, so to speak. And the second half of the night, now we've left. And that, that actually corresponds to how it happened that night in Egypt. Right, even though that's not mentioned here, and I haven't ever seen it in a book anywhere, but it is interesting that it does correspond to that. Okay, so there's two different ways of of understanding what happens that night. Okay, let's see the resolution of the Gemara. Very interesting resolution. Now that it was stated thus, and it was stated thus, in other words, now that we said, lean on the first two, and not on the last two, or lean on the last two, and not on the first two, and both of these statements were said in the name of whom? Rav Nachman. So what do we know Rav Nachman didn't say? And what do we know that Rav Nachman did say? What did Rav Nachman say, clearly? Lean on two. And don't lean on some. Well, you're right. We, we, we can't necessarily apply two. The Gemara does, though. Reasonably so. Rav Nachman said, lean, don't lean. We know there are cups that Rav Nachman said, don't lean on. And we know there are cups that Rav Nachman said, lean on. Very interesting resolution in the Gemara. Because after all, what does the Gemara say? Now that it was stated thus and it was stated thus, meaning now that it was stated that Rav Nachman said lean and Rav Nachman said don't lean, and we explained that two different ways, the first and the last ones both necessitate reclining. Which is clearly not whose opinion? Rav Nachman's opinion. It's a very interesting resolution of the, of the problem. Because we know what Rav Nachman didn't say. Without a shadow of a doubt, what did Rav Nachman not say? Lean on all four. Absolutely clear. That's not what he said. And yet, the resolution of the disagreement regarding Rav Nachman's statements is lean on all four. <laughs> Only Jews could do such a thing. You and I might relate that to that as a, as, a, as, a, as a perfectly reasonable possibility. These sources, which are probably students of Rav Nachman, right? meaning when the Gemara brings these people who are explaining Rav Nachman, they could very well be his students who said, we know that this is what he meant. Now, amongst themselves, there's, in, 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 their, in regarding their positions itself, there's, there's a disagreement. These two are these two. But it doesn't seem to be one or three as a possibility. Theoretically, it is. There's absolutely no question. But the Gemara tells us what it tells us, so it seems reasonable to go that way. It means amongst the Jewish people. It doesn't mean in the land of Israel. Yeah, exactly. Right. 
Okay. Um, very interesting resolution. Why might that be our resolution? Having understood the disagreement the way we understood it? Okay, we don't know the answer, but usually when we don't know the answer, usually when we're faced with a, with a halachic disagreement, whether it's between the same person, meaning it's not really the same person, right? Rav Nachman said what he said, and there are different people who disagree as to how to interpret Rav Nachman. We don't know who they are, but Rav Nachman said what he said. Different people interpret him in, a different, in different ways. That being said, we have a halachic disagreement between A and B. Generally, what do we do? Put on Rabbeinu Tom's. Put on Rabbeinu what do we do? We choose A or B based on certain rules of halakhic decision-making. Often it depends who said A and who said B because there are very, very many cases in halakhic disagreements where we will always decide the halakha is in accordance with a particular person in a disagreement with another person. Uh, true, we don't have priority, but we'll still generally say A or B. Because after all, it's not that A is right and B is wrong if we choose A. They're both right. You and I have to do one thing. We can't possibly do two things. And so in our inability to do them both, we'll choose one, generally. Right. This is not a classic solution of a halakhic problem. It's a very unusual solution. But what does the solution seem to be saying? They're both right. Generally, we always know that two different positions in halacha, when we, let's say, Rav and Abaya, that they're the most classic example of a disagreement amongst Amaroyim. As a matter of fact, the Gemara describes itself as the disagreements between Rav and Abaya, even though there are all sorts of other things going on. But they are the most ubiquitous of the Amaroyim. So Rav and we, and we Paskin, like, we, we decide halacha in accordance with Rav's position in every single disagreement except six. And there's an acronym telling us which those six are. The Gemara itself mentions that. Okay, does that mean Abaya's wrong? No, absolutely not. The Gemara says, Eilu ve'elu divrei chayim. These and these are words of the living God. In other words, the absolute unified will of God, when it comes into this world and expresses itself, so it expresses itself within the context of the multiplicity of this world. So just like God's unity, which is the source of the existence of everything in this room, is expressing itself in very, very different ways within the context of all the things that exist in this room. Chairs are very different than tables, which are very different than foam cups, which will tell you how wonderful they are relative to paper cups if you haven't read your foam cup. And people, those are very different things, all equally expressions of God's existence, though very different. So too in the context of God's will. God's will, when it expresses itself in the world in, the term, in terms of Jewish law, so that will can be expressed in differentiated ways, in different ways, such that there can be an expression of God's will that says this is the proper action, and there can be an expression of God's will that says this is the proper action, and they are both equally expressions of God's will, to such an extent that there's an amazing medrash that's quoted in a book called Machzer Vitri, which was written a little bit after the closure of the Gemara, that when God was explaining the oral tradition to Moshe on Har Sinai, 
Because when God gave Moses the Torah, he didn't just give him the written Torah, the five books of Moses, he also gave him the oral tradition, which is, ends up being the Gemara, etc. When God was teaching Moshe the oral Torah, Moshe asked about a particular halacha, a particular case. What's the halacha? What's the law in this case? And God said, Shimon b'ni o'mer kach. Yehuda b'ni o'mer kach. Shimon, my son, says like this. Yehuda, my son, says like this. And that happens to be a disagreement in a Mishnah between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. Meaning, Moshe Rabbeinu was taught the machlekes. He was taught the disagreement by God. God himself said, this expression of my will can express itself in two ways in the world. We can only do one, so we'll choose one as opposed to the other. Because we can't do two things at once. We can't say that this is permitted and forbidden. It's going to be one or the other. But there is an aspect of God's will which would demand that this be permitted. There's another aspect of God's will that demands that exactly the same thing should be forbidden. And they're both right. What's an example of such a thing? If you've ever seen a painting by Agam, Yaakov Agam, heard of the, the, the Israeli painter, Agam? So how does he paint? It's very interesting. He doesn't paint on a, on a canvas. He paints on a canvas, but then he takes his pictures and he puts them on, on like triangle-like surfaces. So when you're standing in front of the picture, it's hard to see exactly what you're looking at. When you turn to one side, what do you see? So you see, of course, one side of those triangles. So you'll see a boat on the ocean, right? But as you move across, that image changes until you then see a sun setting in the mountains. And, the, and it, it also, the, the experience of moving across is a very interesting experience in terms of what you, what you see. Oh, so now, what's the right picture? Depends what vantage point you're looking at. The picture from, okay. So to God's will. What's the proper expression of God's will? Beishamai Beishilil, the two most famous authors of the, in the Mishnah. Well, Beishamai tends to express God's will within the context of stern judgment. Beishilil tends to express God's will in the context of loving kindness, which is right. They're both right. We happen to always decide in accordance with Beis Hillel. A few instances not, but almost every time in accordance with Beis Hillel. Okay. There is an opinion in the mystical aspects of the Torah that when Mashiach comes, we'll actually start judging in accordance with Beis Shammai. One of the famous disagreements is how do we light Hanukkah candles? Do we go one to eight or eight to one? If you look at things from the perfect perspective, the heavenly perspective of Beis Shammai, you already know there are eight days of miracle. Now there are seven left, six left, five left, four left, three left. When you look at things from the earthly perspective of Beis Hillel, ooh, there was a miracle. Ooh, there was another miracle. That's two days. Ooh, another miracle. That's three days. And so Beis Hillel says we should do one, then two, then three, then four, then five, because we're looking at it from a certain perspective, our perspective. Beis Shammai, Shammai, interesting enough, sounds like what word? Shamayim, which means heaven. The heavenly perspective, which is din, stern judgment, which demands perfection. Heavenly perspective is a, is a 
perspective of perfect reality. And from that perspective, well, I already know there's eight days of miracle. I'm transcendent of, of the time of one, two, three, four, five. Okay. So Shammai says eight down to one. We, we have three more minutes. This resolution of all of this is, interestingly enough, they're both right. Now, they're always both right, but that's an interesting resolution of the problem in a halakhic in a halakhic conversation. We usually choose one or the other. Pick one. If you pick one, you know, if you want to look at it this way, you have a 50% chance of being right in terms of what Rav Nachman said. We are 100% sure that we're not doing what Rav Nachman said. That's for sure, because he said two and two. So why don't we just pick one? And Okay, we have a 50% chance of being 100% right in terms of what Rav Nachman said. We don't do that. Why not? Okay, quickly, because it is time to stop in a couple of minutes. Let's just quickly look at the verses that I asked you to ask you to read, okay? And they might be the, the clue to this interesting question relative to this Gemara. Relative to the mitzvah of matzah, right? I asked a couple of people before the class, why do we eat matzah? You ask a Jewish child, why do we eat matzah? The question asked in the Haggadah itself, why do we eat matzah? What's the answer? Well, we didn't, as we were leaving Egypt, we didn't have time for the dough to rise, so we cooked it right away, and we had these flat cakes called matzah, right? You ask a kid, oh, that's what he'll say. Okay, I'm sure when you were kids and you were asked at the Seder, that's what you said, right? We were all asked the question, and we gave that answer. That's what we were taught to say. Okay, well, interestingly enough, in the very beginning of the, of the 12th chapter of Shemari, so you can... Just quickly, let's read these verses. And this, this day shall be for you as a memorial, and you shall celebrate it as a festival of the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall celebrate it as an everlasting statue. That is the first day of Pesach. For seven days, you shall eat unleavened cakes. That's interesting. You're supposed to eat matzah. This is a verse told to us on the first day of the month of Nisan, two weeks before we leave Egypt. There's a commandment in the Torah to eat matzah. But on the preceding day, you shall clear away all leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leaven from the first day until the seventh day, that soul should be cut off from Israel. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. On the seventh day, you shall have a holy convocation, meaning the first day is a yomtif and the second day is a yomtif. And you shouldn't perform work. And you shall watch over the unleavened cakes. For on this very day, I have taken your legions out of the land of Egypt. And you shall have served this day through the generations an everlasting statute. Keep Pesach. Oh, now look at verse 18. In the first month, on the 14th day in the evening, meaning the beginning of the 15th day, you shall eat unleavened cakes, eat matzah, until the 21st day of the month in the evening. Okay. In other words, why do you eat matzah, according to these verses? We could keep reading, but we're not going to. Why do we eat matzah? Because God said, eat matzah. God said, eat matzah. Why? Because there's a mitzvah to eat matzah. Two weeks before we left Egypt, there's a mitzvah to eat matzah. Okay. So then you might ask, well, I don't understand. Why did they tell me this bubba mice about bread not rising? And that's why you're not, I mean, that, that doesn't make sense. Okay, so let's keep reading. If you look at the second source on page five, at the third source of Exodus. Okay, let's just read that quickly. And power arose at night. He and all his servants is after the, the killing of the firstborn. And there was a great outcry in Egypt for there was no house in which there was, no one was dead. 
So he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Get up and get out from amongst my people, both you as well as the children of Israel, and go worship the God as you have, the, the Lord as you have spoken. Take also your flocks, your cattle, as you have spoken, because Moshe said, we're going to take everything, and go, but you shall also bless me, give me a bracha on your way out, because Paro's not, I mean, he's not the smartest guy around, but he certainly understands that when you're standing in front of Moshe Rabbeinu, it's a good idea to ask for a bracha. So the Egyptians took hold of the people to hasten to send them out of the land, for they said, we are all dead. The people picked up their dough when it had not yet leavened, their leftovers bound in their garments on their shoulders. Shoulders, And the Jewish and the children of Israel did according to Moses' order, and they borrowed from the Egyptians silver objects, golden objects and garments, etc. This is to fulfill the idea that God told Abraham that when you leave, you will leave Baruchush Godel, you'll leave with a lot of stuff. The Lord gave the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they lent them, and they emptied out Egypt. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 on foot, the men besides the young children, and also a great mixed multitude went up with them, meaning other people came, the flocks, cattle, very much livestock. They baked the dough that they had taken out of Egypt as unleavened cakes, for it had not leavened, for they were driven out of Egypt, and they could not tarry, and also they had not made provisions for themselves. I understand. According to this, why are you eating matzah on, the, on, on, on Pesach? Why did they eat matzah on Pesach? Because they cooked matzahs, because they had to leave in a hurry. But I don't understand. What were they told two weeks before? Eat matzah. So they probably did that already. <laughs> I mean, they probably had the Seder in Egypt. They left at midnight. I assume they had the Seder already in Egypt. They, the Korban Pesach. They were told to bring the Paschal offering, the, the Korban Pesach. They brought it in the afternoon on the 14th. And they ate, they ate it with matzah and bitter herbs together. Right? What's this doing here? So, there are all sorts of interesting problems that arise from this verse, these verses. Why in the world did they have dough that might have risen? They were told they weren't allowed to have chametz. Interesting question. That's not our particular question. Hopefully you'll, you'll think about it, you'll look into it, look around for answers. Go to Chabad.org and search around, see what you can find. But, that being said, What do we learn from matzah itself? Is matzah a mitzvah or is matzah a story? It's a mitzvah and it's a story. It's both. There's the mitzvah of matzah. That's the first, those are the first verses we learned. And then there's the story of matzah. Those are the second verses we learned. That defines the Pesach experience. What is the Pesach experience? Is it a mitzvah or is it a story? Meaning, are you experiencing in a meta-historical way the reality of leaving Egypt? Or are you telling a story about the leaving of Egypt? And what's the answer? Both. You're doing both. And the verses in the Torah are very much the source for the idea that when we eat, when we drink wine, and we have this interesting disagreement as to whether or not we should relate to Pesach as the story the free person tells, or the experience that that person is having as they're doing the mitzvahs, because the mitzvah, of course, is beyond time, well, matzah teaches us that both are happening. And that's why the Gemara comes to the conclusion that it comes to. They're both right. 
Now, they're always both right, but in Pesach especially, they are specifically proper expressions of what's happening. Because at the Seder, two things are happening. We're telling a story about how we became free. On the 15th day of Nisan in the year 2448, certain events happened. There's no question they happened. We know they happened. Something happened in our history. It's not an allegory. It happened. We know the dates. Okay. But there's also something else happening when we're sitting at the Seder. There is a, again, that meta-historical aspect that we are experiencing freedom. And every year, the cycle of the calendar since, I mean, it's not Pesach now, right? At the very beginning when there were a couple of people sitting in the room, so it was mentioned that, well, maybe if this were about Rosh Hashanah, there would, you know, the room would be overflowing, but it's about Pesach and we just did that. It's like, it's not coming for a while. Pesach begins a process every single year. We go through a yearly cycle that begins, interesting enough, Pesach is the first month, which begins with a divine revelation of the ability to free ourselves of our limitations. Pesach. Using that energy properly, and this all comes from above, and for that reason Pesach is all about the amazing things God did. There's very little that we did. We didn't do very much. God did it all. Interestingly enough, in the Torah, the, hol- the holiday is always called Chag Matzos, the festival of Matzos. We call it Pesach. And Rav Levi Yitzchak says that there's a very deep and beautiful reason for that. We call it Pesach because that's what God did. God passed over the houses to save us. We call it a name in accordance with our appreciation of God's great loving kindness in saving us. So we praise him the way we call it Pesach. God passed over the houses and kept us alive. God calls it Chagamatzos. He calls it a name relative to what we do. He wants us to eat matzahs, and, he, and he's very happy, so to speak, that we do that. So he actually calls the, the, the holiday after that which we do. We call it a name based on what he does. He calls it a name based on what we do, because that's what love's all about. What happens when we're sitting at that Seder? We're experiencing the revelation from above of the possibility to extract ourselves from our limitations. Mitzarim. The word Mitzarim, which is exactly the same letters as Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim means a place of limitation. Tsar is confined and narrow. That gives us the energy to work on ourselves slowly but surely and come to the next step, which is the giving of the Torah, opening ourselves up to receive the Torah, to be a vessel to allow godliness to penetrate into us. And that takes time because, after all, if the revelation is all from above, it's all very nice, but it doesn't change me. I don't change based on external stimuli. I have to then internalize that and bring about the change from within, and then I'm now ready to accept the Torah. We've accepted the Torah, and then we deal, it's interesting, it's, a, it's, it's an idea, the Torah was given in the Northern Hemisphere, it's just as 
applicable to the southern hemisphere, but the time frame of Torah is always northern hemisphere, Israel. We then go through the summer. What does the summer represent? The heated passion of life in this world. And it's certainly the summer where people spend a lot of time expressing their desire for physical pleasure one way or the other, whether it's the water skiing or things that might be a little less healthy. The passion of the summer. Okay. Because when we receive the Torah, we're receiving the Torah in the context of a world that is full of that passion that might distract us from where we really want to go. At the end of the summer, we come to the time that we're in now, which is the time of Elul, first, the time of reckoning, of stock-taking, of stepping back and saying, wait, where am I? Where am I going? And then ultimately, the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest gift that God gave us, the ability to change ourselves, the ability to rectify the past, and make a very powerful statement relative to what's going to happen in the future, which is Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the beginning of the year, a time when we, the, the process of tshuva, the process of our relationship with God being very much coming from us, not so much great revelation from above, but a very, very powerful movement from below. And then we take that self-produced connection into the darkness of the winter and illuminate the world, illuminate the darkness of the world, then what? It starts all over again. Every year, the same cycle. First, a God-given redemption that gives us the power to do it. We accept the Torah. In the context of bringing the Torah into the world, we realize the need for these days, the days of tshuva, the days of the impetus coming from us, that we pull ourselves closer to God. It's not God coming to us, which is Nisan, but rather we are approaching God. That's the, that's the idea of Tishrei. Pesach is God coming to us. Nisan is uh, Tishrei. I'm sorry, these days are us going up to God and ultimately bringing about the illumination of the darkness of the world, which is the winter. And again, and again, and again, that process repeats itself. Each year, hopefully, we extract ourselves from a more sophisticated state of limitation, and the work we do from below is a much more powerful and sophisticated work. But Pesach begins it all. And it's true we tell a story, because a story happened. Events happened. We really got out of Egypt. There were really ten plagues. This Red Sea really split. God really gave us the Torah. That happened. Those are historical events. But those events also transcend time. And they happen constantly every year. And we tap into that energy and bring about real change in ourselves. And that's what time is really all about, because time brings about change. Everybody knows that. The question is, what change? The change that time brings about in its own natural way or the change in ourselves that we bring about by virtue of working hard on internalizing truth and becoming different people as we move through life, growing in a way that we come close, become closer and closer and closer to God. And, and there's, there's always, we're always getting help from above. That's the Pesach of life. And there's always the challenge to do it from below. That's the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur of life. And, and, and that, that process is what our lives are all about, constantly. 
And when we're successful, which we should be immediately, we'll experience the ultimate Pesach, and that'll be the coming of Mashiach, and we'll be taken out of a state of limitations, the likes of which we can't even imagine, and we'll experience something beyond limitation in a way we certainly can't imagine. It should happen speedily in our days. Oh.